Hello and welcome to episode 41 of CBT, Chunky Bacon Tacos and Psychological Safety. Chunky Bacon Tacos! I am very happy to be here with Sam Livingston Gray. Thank you, Jessica, for the musical interlude. Thank you. That was amazing. So I was away from my time zone for three weeks, but unless I missed a memo or I suppose a robot uprising, I, I think we're still greater than code. With that out of the way, I'd like to welcome Janelle Klein to the show. Thank you, Sam. I'd like to introduce Jessica Kerr. Good morning. Thank you, Janelle. And I have the great honor of introducing our guest today. Casey Watts works for Heroku doing Ember. His superpower is empathy and helping others become more empathetic. Casey never leaves home without bubbles. He has a background in both psychology and software development, making him well prepared to discuss psychology with developers. He studied neurobiology at Yale University, and he co-published a few neurobiology papers. Casey, welcome to Greater Than Code. Woo, thank you. So Casey, it says in your bio that your superpower is empathy. Were you always an empathetic person? Oh, that's an awesome first question. No, I was born a robot. <laughs> Were you an I empathetic a... robot? No, I didn't know what feelings. I don't think they mattered. So then how did you acquire your superpower? Uh, eventually, I used my robot introspection abilities to realize that other people mattered and that understanding myself and my feelings mattered because my subconscious brain had lots of secret messages for me that are really useful. Okay, that's interesting. How did you figure out that this stuff was useful? I remember... A friend in middle school who helped me learn that having friends was useful and good. And he would tell me like very blunt things all the time. Like, I don't know, Casey, you can't say that to people. I kind of had a, a mentor of sorts in that way. And I learned. Casey, you studied neurobiology at Yale. What got you into neurobiology? Uh, it was almost accidental, sort of. I went to college expecting I'd do computers or maybe biology, genetics, those were very interesting. But the classes I took, I just took the ones that were taught the best, that you would learn the most from for proportionally the least amount of work. I didn't mind working, but I had to optimize the amount I was going to learn. And the psychology classes at Yale are just awesome. All of them are like super well-rated. You learn a ton. They were some of the most satisfying classes I took. But I love biology too. I took enough biology classes, I could kind of cross them together. And then I found a lab that I could work in for two of the years there that was doing really cool research. And that was neurobiology. That's my major. Did you write software as part of the research? Actually, I did work at a lab that did that for one semester earlier at college, but I did no software for my major, really. Software was totally like a side project hobby thing. I had a student internship for four years doing software development and computer tech support stuff. That's kind of a fork part of my life. Out of curiosity, did the tech support contribute to your empathy development? Um, actually, surprisingly, yes. Customer support is really important to work well with people, and the things they taught explicitly there just kind of clarified and solidified, crystallized some of the thoughts I had about empathy anyway. So the training for customer support, that's interesting. Could software developers use some of that training? This exact training, absolutely customer support people could use, like role-playing an angry customer and then considering all the options you could use. I think software developers could also use it in terms of working through problems with teammates, maybe uh, role-playing a scenario where you disagree with a teammate because their idea is different from yours and what things you could say, that kind of imagining the different options of the reactions to the situation you have, that's really useful. Absolutely. It kind of reminds me of a previous podcast that we did on failure modes. It seems like this kind of training for dealing with emotions in different situations could be considered prepping for failure mode in interpersonal communication. That makes a lot of sense because it's a lot like with failure and software, we've accepted that a distributed system is going to have failure somewhere all the time. It's just a matter of making it not catastrophic. And it's the same in conversations, right? Yeah. Um, basically, the, um, the idea is that when you're designing a system or participating in a system by managing it and extending it, you need to plan for failure modes because failures are inevitable. Um, and if that's not part of your thinking early on, if it's not part of your planning and design, then it's going to come back and, and bite you. And that's something that's really lacking in software architecture, but it seems like that can also be lacking in interpersonal relationships. It's interesting. I 
sometimes get overwhelmed trying to game out things like that where people are involved because it seems like, you know, when I'm thinking about a software system, I, I feel like I can almost predict the states that it's going to be in. But dealing with other humans is so complicated that my mind just kind of freaks out and goes, ah, I can't deal with that. I think a lot of disconnect happens when people are on, not on the same page, when they don't realize they're on the same page also. Oh, like when we use the same word for two different things and we don't realize that each of us has a different definition. Yeah, definitely. That's a clear one. And uh, even deeper, sometimes people just have different values, different things that they value more than the other person. And if they don't get to the root of that, they can argue in circles forever. The other thing I've seen a lot happen with circles is is when you end up having projections of other people that aren't quite accurate. And then you're reacting to each other, you know, based on these projections and models that you have in your head for another person that doesn't necessarily match where that person is actually at. I was watching your video on cognitive behavioral therapy and the interrupt patterns. And it, it just reminded me a lot of, you know, research I've been working on with, you know, focus more on neuroplasticity and, and changing your patterns. But that's something I've noticed a lot in myself is just the mechanics of projection and how how we see other people and then incorporate that into our own thoughts and feelings. Yeah. If you had a friend close enough or a coworker close enough that you could talk with them deeply about this kind of thing, you can really learn so much about them. I just had a, I don't want to say fight, a disagreement with a friend the other day. And as it turned out, she imagined I was thinking very different thoughts than I actually was. And I imagined she was thinking very different thoughts from what she actually was. And when we sat down and talked about it later, we realized imagined other person's mindset, their projection was just completely wrong on both sides. So cognitive behavioral therapy just got mentioned. So can you maybe give us a definition of chunky bacon tacos? I mean, cognitive behavioral therapy. <laughs> yeah, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, I want to introduce it as the correct answer for every psychology test that I took. It's like circling C on a math test. It's just very likely going to work uh, of these 10 therapies. CBT is a really good one. Uh, CBT is a type of therapy you would do with a therapist most often. There are also like, of course, 100, 100 types of therapy you could do, and this is just one of them. I think the core of CBT is the most important part, and a lot of other therapies have the same core. The core is just like introspect, think about your thoughts and emotions neutrally, reflect on them, critically think about them, and then take the best action after that. Like, really deep thought is the core of what CBT is. I liked the part about uh, when you have a feeling, you can consciously decide, like, how to feel about having that feeling, sort of, so it doesn't spiral. Yeah. Part of CBT distinguishes between automatic and deliberate thoughts and feelings. And I, th I think of automatic feelings as kind of inputs to your system. But as soon as you can stop yourself and notice, you can decide whether you want to continue feeling that feeling or not. Once you're in this kind of introspective state. So your example is like when you step in a puddle and you're like, ah, super frustrated. What's your reaction to that with consciousness? So I can tell you my the inner narrative of what will go through my head. I step in a puddle. I think terrible thoughts like today is the worst. Everything's terrible. My foot's wet. I hate this is the, uh, uh, a lot of that. And there's negative feeling in there and negative word thoughts also. Uh, and I can catch myself and say, Casey, is it useful to feel upset about this? Probably it's useful to feel the emotion and be with it for a moment so that it doesn't fight back harder. But then to continue feeling it and thinking about it and focusing on the negative outcome that I just experienced is not really useful. So I can hopefully catch myself and say, Casey Watts, it is not useful to be grumpy about this. Make a plan and just do it and shut up. Okay, don't this tell yourself to shut up. This kind of reminds me of, I'm working on a book called The Compassionate Coder, and I have a chapter that models emotions as state machines. Um, my thinking there is programmers understand state machines. If we translate emotions to a state machine model, maybe we can better sort of analyze our feelings. And one of the examples that I give in that chapter um, has to do with anger. I think a lot of the triggers for anger involve a boundary or self-image being challenged, and that triggers anger. And you have different options in how you want to respond to anger. Probably our automatic sort of reaction is to lash out. And by lashing out, we internalize that anger and it leads to resentment. But if rather we acknowledge the fact that we have anger, then we can work in a more rational way to restore the boundary or self-image that got challenged. This is going to be a blog post on um, the Greater Than Code blog, by the way. 
The thing that strikes me about state machines is that as we encounter them in computer science, we tend to see them as these static things. There's a path or a graph that you can't get out of. But it sounds like maybe CBT is a way of editing the state machine, giving yourself another option at a particular point. Yeah, I love that image. I think a state in which you can modify your thoughts and emotions, control them deliberately, is just like having a debugger breakpoint in your mind. Nice. Yeah, and in your talk, Casey, you pointed out that a system has input, some processing, and some output, and a feedback loop. Because as conscious humans, we can observe the state machine as we move through it, and then we can change it for next time. We can change that process step so that the same splashy puddle produces a feeling of frustration and an attitude that is not grumpy. I think one of the important things that you mentioned, Casey, kind of in passing that I'd like to talk about a little more is the fact that the goal is not to become emotionless, but rather to acknowledge the, the emotion and be with the emotion for a little while and then handle the processing. Yeah, most of the brain is not the conscious brain. Most of it is the subconscious part emotion. And I like to value most, I think my brain is useful. Most all of my brain is pretty useful and I like to respect it too. Uh, the emotional parts are there for a good reason. People who had, had lose the ability to feel emotion by losing a part of the brain uh, that senses it are just really crippled kind of. They're unable to perform even basic tasks like choosing what food to eat for breakfast. Uh, a lot of decision making is rooted in that emotional part of the brain. That sounds like there's some fascinating research behind that. Yeah, that's really interesting. It implies that most of the decisions that we make on a daily basis don't like have a clear, rational answer, but we need to have some answer anyway. So we do that with our feelings? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Uh, the feelings I'm equating here, I guess, to just subconscious mental processes, the calculus that's underlying your brain folds. Yeah, and if people who can't feel emotions can't do that, then clearly the emotions are like, they're well, like you said, they're input. I think we... We have this sort of ideal um, software developers that the ideal software developer is emotionless and is a purely rational creature. And I think a lot of people aspire to that. And that seems so sad and so damaged to me. Yeah, I think there's something to it, though. If you could be a robot that takes into account feelings, you could be a formidable force and be very effective. But a lot of people just forget to incorporate emotions into their heuristics that they're using. I use emotions in my programming all the time, though. Like, we talk about code smells, and and I think a code smell is a sort of taxonomy on top of this sort of gut reaction that we have after working with code for years and years of, uh, that doesn't seem quite right. And at least my the way I experience it, my first clue that there may be a code smell I need to pay attention to is that feeling of, ugh. So emotions are not in opposition to rational thinking. They are a crucial input to productive rational thinking. Yeah, I like the way you said that a lot. I think even more than that, rationality is a facade on top of an emotional brain in that I don't think rationality is at the core of, you know, the way that our brain, our brains are wired as irrational emotional systems. And we've got a set of rules and metaphors for what is logic, what is rational that sits on top. And that as soon as people kind of get to energy zero status (laughs) and their ability to sort of interrupt themselves and think and be aware of their decisions kind of goes away and they're stuck in that subconscious emotional processing mode. Is that like being hangry? (laughs) Yeah, but you start to see like the rational stuff kind of go out the window because it's it's sitting on top. It's like the outer brain. For the record, hangry is a word that comes up in Casey's talk. And of course, it means angry because you're hungry. I learned about this word while pregnant. I first encountered the word uh, when some friends of mine were parenting a kid who's a couple years older than ours. I was like, oh, that's what's coming. <laughs> Inner and outer brain has now come up. And I know that's something that you cover in your talk, Casey. Do you want to sort of introduce that concept? So the inner brain versus the outer brain dichotomy is really useful. I'd like to illustrate it with an image of a cat you may have seen. There is a cat eating its food. Behind it, there's a cucumber sneakily placed by the cat's owner. When the cat turns around, ah, the cat jumps because the cat is so afraid of what that thing is. What is uh, up with cats and cucumbers? I don't know why they're so afraid. I can't explain it. 
My daughter has tried it, and our cats are not fooled. I wonder if there's a conspiracy, and the cats aren't afraid of the cucumber, but some loud sound off, off screen. Ooh. Ah. Uh, so the cat has two responses. One is the jump, in which it's afraid. And then afterwards, the cat looks at the cucumber, realizes it's a cucumber, and looks like, uh, this is fine. Uh, in a serious, this is fine, not the meme. So this illustrates the inner versus the outer brain. The inner brain is super quick. It's really fast making snap judgments, like being afraid of potential threats on the ground. And the outer brain is the thoughtful conscious part that realizes after the fact, that is not actually a threat. That is a cucumber. (laughs) (laughs) Cucumber tacos! Is this like System 1 and System 2 in Thinking Fast and Slow? Yeah, it's just like that, exactly. I love when people bring that book up. Uh, So yeah, System 1 and System 2... And it's kind of like the feeling part of the brain and the thinking part of the brain. The feeling part has emotions and amorphous things. And the thinking part of the brain has more conscious verbal words. What is it we can do once we have that model? Your brain is made up of thoughts and feelings. And to realize that there are different parts of the brain is pretty useful. I don't know. There's no direct action here. This is just background how the brain works stuff. Cool. And it's, well, it's useful to like recognize that feelings are fast, but they're not our last reaction. We can jump at the cucumber, but later we could go back and eat it if we were a vegetarian cat. True. So, Casey, I have a question for you. I mean, I I was so fascinated by your talk and your interest and your perspective just on life. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit about just your story and how, how you came to be the person that you are today. There's a story recently about how I have a smoker living near me that smokes a lot and goes through the vents. And I confronted him empathetically. And it turned out great. He's sorry. He doesn't want to do that to me now that he knows that it's uncomfortable. So empathy is powerful and useful. There's that word empathetic again. Can you define empathetic versus empathic? The way that I've always encountered them is that empathic is an ESP psi power, kind of, in that an empath is somebody who like magically intuits the feelings of others or gets them across the ether or something. It's very sci-fi, right? Whereas empathetic is, I just think of it as somebody who has empathy or who perform empathy. I have no idea if that's useful, but there we go. So empathic would be like a literal superpower of supernaturally knowing what someone else is feeling. And empathetic is using our outer brain to figure out what someone else is feeling? I think it involves the outer and the inner brain both. But it's like using the clues from the environment that you can pick up, like spatial expression and tone of voice and things they said and their background maybe, the history if you know that, and how a normal human would feel in that circumstance. It's using all those inputs to formulate in your mind an imagined feeling of how they feel and probably actually feeling it too. Like mirroring that feeling in a part of your brain. The other day at NDC Oslo, Pavnit gave a really good talk about empathy, and he distinguished sympathy from empathy as sympathy is, I can tell you how I would feel in your situation, and empathy is, I see how you feel in that situation. Yeah, I like that definition. Similar one that I use, pretty close. I think sympathy, you are just thinking about the thoughts of what it would be like, but not actually feeling it yourself. But then actually feeling empathy is feeling the feeling, experiencing it yourself really like deeply. That's interesting. So you could, in this case, your outer brain is influencing your inner brain because you really do feel it by conscious decision. I suppose you can only really feel it if you felt something similar before and remember that feeling. So there's even some prep work to make yourself able to empathize. There was an interesting study that I heard about that dealt with learning empathy. It involved rats. Uh, I think the research was done at a university in Japan, there was a box with two compartments that was divided by a partition. On one side of the box, a rat was placed in a pool of water that was not so deep that the rat would drown, but the rat had to tread water, basically. And on the other side of the box, another rat was placed on a dry platform, and there was a small round door that the dry platform rat could open. And within a few days, the rats placed on the dry platform learned how to help the rats in the wet side of the compartment. If the other side was dry, they weren't concerned with opening the door. But if the rat perceived that the other rat was in distress, it would actually go and open the door and let the rat climb through to the dry side. Cool. I think some people feel like empathy is something you either have or you don't. But I think the lesson with the rats is that empathy can be learned. You can learn to practice empathy or, as Sam put it, perform empathy. 
Because empathy is an active process. It's not yeah. something you have or you don't. And with regard to what Casey said about, you know, having to draw on your own experience, in that study, the rats that had previously experienced being on the wet side were faster to react to the distress of the other rat. That's awesome. I'm so glad to have heard of that study. So the first step in learning empathy is go feel all the things. Yeah, exactly. Or imagine feeling all the things at least, because that gets you partway there. Or you brought up in your talk, read fiction. Yeah, I love that one. People say fiction is useless. Nah, no way. And fiction oh. is the place where you go to see other people's thoughts clearly written out. Please expand on that. How can fiction lead to a greater performance of empathy? So it's, it stretches your empathy muscle by helping you imagine what other people are thinking and feeling. And it's done extremely well in fiction because that's the role. Even the main character you're trying to think about being, you have to get into their head to really experience the book fully. It's possible you could do something similar with by talking to friends who are very introspective, but with books, there's so much there already for you. Kind of reminded of an observation I made about William Gibson's writing. His main characters, you don't really see their motivations. And I think that he leaves that out deliberately to encourage the reader to place themselves in the role of the character. But I wonder if he's doing a disservice by not sharing that sort of emotional journey as part of the plot. By the way, I think that's why Keanu Reeves was perfect in um, William Gibson adaptions, because he does not display emotions at all. (laughs) So, Casey, this podcast is kind of aimed at software developers. And one of the interesting things that I saw on one of your talk slides was this idea of earned dogmatism. And I think that it resonated with me because I, I see this in a lot of senior developers. Can you sort of go into that a little bit? Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, this is one of my favorite psychology phenomena, and partly because the term to describe it is so flowery and interesting. So the earned dogmatism effect is when you are so experienced in something, you have so much experience that you know the correct answers and you know what the incorrect answers are, very like black and white. And this experience is often useful. For example, I'm I'm dogmatic about basic math. Two plus two is absolutely four. Do not argue with me. I know that it is true. And that's kind of useful on a low level. But as soon as you get into more complex systems, it's not as useful. Where you think that this implementation of code is better than the alternative because you're so experienced. The problem with the earned dogmatism effect is when you're in this state, you're closed-minded to new information. You're so sure you're right. You don't want to hear about other people's perspectives because it would be like a waste of time. or You've already thought of everything. So, of course, people act like this sometimes. I'm sure you've seen it. Your senior developers you're working with just know that they are right and they don't want to hear about the other options. But you yeah. suspect your solution you're proposing has some merits and the other one has some demerits that we haven't even discussed yet that aren't on the table. For me, the best tincture, the best like solution cure for this situation is to help the dogmatic person realize they're missing information. Because if they're missing it, of course, they would they would want to have the fuller picture, hopefully. But it doesn't always work. It's not like a foolproof thing. Make, you can't make anyone be open-minded all of a sudden just by your actions. Something that helps me sort of avoid that, what I think is an instinctive reaction, really, is pairing with someone less experienced because they are more apt to ask questions like, Coraline, why are you doing it that way? Or why do you see it that way? And then having to explain it to them, I get beyond the sort of knee-jerk pattern recognition impulse to solve a problem the way I've always solved the problem and actually consider, like, is this the best way to approach solving this problem? Because if I can't explain it, then it's probably not a good idea. I feel like what you've just described, Coraline, is a wonderful hack and a wonderful way to get yourself back into beginner's mind. But you have to place yourself in an appropriate frame of mind to be able to take that feedback. I've worked with a couple of seniors when I was earlier in my career that, you know, they were just there to teach me the right way to do things. It goes back to Coraline's state machine of at the point where you're challenged, when they ask you, why did you do that? They're challenging your boundaries or if you're really dogmatic, your (laughs) self-image. And you can either acknowledge, thank you, and I'll try to explain why, or you can be like, you can lash out. And that's really destructive because then you're teaching that junior dev to shut up. And that's the last thing you want. I think the other thing it does forces us to come up with words for a lot of things that are driven solely by gut instincts. Like you get used to making lots of development decisions based on gut feel and doing things because it's just the way that makes sense to do it without really spending a whole lot of time 
thinking about it and processing what's going on and having clarity in your own why. And so with working with more junior folks, I find that it's forced me to clarify a lot of my own ideas and opinions through those challenges. Yeah, I think I would uh, defend the human brain for a moment. This is a natural brain tendency to take shortcuts, become closed-minded, and do things very quickly. Uh, And that's awesome. Our brains have conserved a lot of resources. It helps us through lots of our life, like choosing what clothes to wear in the morning. You don't need to deliberate on that for hours. But it gets in our way a little when we're doing software development of complex systems. And we really should be thinking critically about these things. So I think it's an appropriate mental response in a lot of situations. And I don't want to poo-poo on it at all, which I don't think we've done yet. But it's natural to want to do next. One factoid that I ran across when I was researching a talk on cognitive bias I gave a couple of years ago was that the brain is 2 to 3% of your body mass, but it accounts for 20% of your caloric intake, approximately. Uh, and so that's just a huge amount of resources to be used by a tiny part of your body. And so your brain naturally has to be very efficient with the resources that it uses because your body otherwise literally could not support it. Yeah, the biology of neurobiology, right? Casey, in your talk, you gave some interesting examples of negative ways to react, unhelpful mental processes, and you had a cool graphic of that. So question one, do you have a link to that little summary of eight, because I want to stick it to the wall? And two, can you give us some examples of what not to think about how we feel? Uh, There's an awesome graphic that I'm really into that has 10 maladaptive cognitions, the most common unhelpful thinking patterns. A uh, link to this is at caseywatts.com slash mind manipulation, all lowercase, one word, no dashes, nothing, mind manipulation. And I, that's a Google doc that I published that has a whole bunch of links to things. One in particular has the word poster. If you want to control left that page for poster, that's the 10. So uh, generalizing is a shortcut we do often, and it's useful, but it's not always the most effective. Sometimes it causes us to have trouble. Uh, another one is uh, magnification. So if I step in a puddle and I say, not only this is inconvenient, I also probably think to myself, this sucks, wet shoes are the worst, this day is terrible, I hate everything. I'm kind of generalizing and disqualifying the positive things that happened that day and fortune telling the rest of the day is going to be bad. Probably I'm having those kinds of thoughts too. And those are all examples of maladaptive thought patterns, uh, ways of thinking that aren't always bad, but are kind of like red flags. You should stop and think about them if you notice you're thinking in that way. Probably anytime you're angry, a lot of your thoughts that are the most satisfying to say are going to be these maladaptive thought patterns. I think that seems to be true, and that's unfortunate. I don't know why that's true. That's a standing question. Well, that's interesting. Is it related to why we want to swear? Yeah, probably. Part of it's expressing that you're upset to other people. So maybe we should just curse and not think, this is all my fault. Yeah, that would probably externalize it and let it pass faster. I think cursing is not bad in that kind of situation. No way. Wait, now I have an excuse. Cathartic release. As an aside, I know there have been studies about cursing and mental health. Does anybody have any memory of what that was about? It said that cursing is totally good for you. I'm making that up. (laughs) Like 87% of statistics, which are made up on the spot. Research is so great at providing like a narrative to what I already want to believe. I was just thinking about the other side of empathy of just as a human, you know, we have thoughts and feelings and we want to be heard. I think it's just one of the deepest needs of the human heart. And so amplifying your feelings and your experience such that someone else can go, wow, yeah, I can really see that you're having a really awful day and feel really frustrated. And like, we want somebody to empathize with us so we can feel connected. I'm guessing that amplification probably comes from that inner drive to need to be heard. That sounds true. I mean, uh, bonding with other people is certainly proven to be useful and good for health and just all around awesome. Okay, now I'm thinking about something I read a little while ago about yawning and how yawning is this deep-seated behavior built way down in the limbic system. And there's been, I read some theories about how it is used as a signaling behavior to signal to other members of your species that you are changing state either into or out of wakefulness and that they then maybe need to pay attention. So it's a signal that is wired into us at a very low level. I wonder if the swearing is a higher level manifestation of that same thing is what you're saying. Now that sounds great. This is a signal. Swearing is certainly a signal of some kind. 
either to you or to people around you, probably to people around you, since you're saying it out loud, usually. So, Casey, when when we hear someone else either cursing or uh, doing one of these maladaptive cognition things, such as magnification or filtering out the positive, what can we do when we hear that on our team? Oh, boy, that's tricky. You can absolutely do this to yourself, but you can't just make other people think differently. Uh, you can do it ahead of time, maybe, by sharing this talk or a book about CBT or the chart with your team and helping them think about it more. But it's hard to make them do anything. You can't really force anyone to do stuff. At the same time, though, if if we translate this back to what we're talking about and that what the human is expressing is that they're they're frustrated and they have a need to be heard, that I think the thing that we can do in response is to hear them. I mean, somebody's essentially calling out from their heart and, you know, these feelings that are coming up and they just want somebody to hear them. I would think that helping to give the person what they need makes sense. Yeah, totally agreed. I think validating their experience is the most powerful thing you can do in that moment, probably. And if you were to skip straight to, oh, I noticed you are thinking some maladaptive cognitions. That's kind of invalidating, and they're not going to feel any better. <laughs> Defensive, it's ruined. If that were me, I would be thinking that might be a maladaptive cognition. <laughs> See, turns it into a nice statement. That, that's often some, yeah, definitely. It kind of goes do that. the um, a psychological safety thing, though, too, where just creating a ambiance on your team where that's okay. I like to think that I'm really good at noticing. I'm always entering the whoop state. Oh, I didn't define that yet. Do you want to hear about that? Whoop. So when I'm when I'm getting upset over something in a bad mindset, I'll often catch it and I'll think to myself, or sometimes say out loud if I'm around the right people, I'll go whoop, and that puts me into what I call the <laughs> whoop state. The whoop state is something where I'm very introspective and I'm thinking about all the inputs that are affecting me and my mood and if I'm hangry or not and what just happened to me and what someone said and my values and principles and I try to think about everything and what how would I ideally respond to the situation. I can think about all the thoughts and feeling inputs, and I can choose which output to do, and I'm pretty good at getting into the state and being introspective. And I'm really proud that I can do that. Even every time I do it, I'm like, yes, I did it again. Pretty awesome, Casey. The next step is what I'm proud of, is sometimes I say that it is useful to be upset in this situation, so I should maintain it and not diffuse it. But most of the time, it's not really useful being upset over walking down the street and somebody cuts you off, like a driver drives by and is mean or terrible. It's not really useful to be upset at that person if your upsetness is not having any positive impact on them or the world or anything. So that one I might just let by. But if it's a neighbor that's always parking at the edge of the line and I can barely get in, it might be worth getting upset over that enough to talk to them about it rationally. Choosing your response is really the core of this idea of CBT. And you want to talk to them about it while you're annoyed, but before you're furious. Yeah, or at least I want to write down why I'm annoyed so I can read it later to get into that state again, maybe. Or, yeah, I, anyway, I want to maintain the annoyance such that I actually do take action and talk to them. Like with the smoker upstairs. I think that's a fun anecdote. Yeah, that is. Um, I mentioned the smoker earlier. I actually got a note from him yesterday, uh, taped to my door. It says, thank you so much for talking to me like an actual human. That was amazing. Here's my phone number. Text me if anything else is terrible. And, like, I haven't had a saga with this upstairs neighbor for three months, four months. He's always smoking, and I'm always asking him not to, and it was just awesome. The smoking example is a, is a good example of there's a time in between when you have the feeling and when you've suppressed it so much that you have a narrative about it, about how terrible that person is, and then you're furious with them. And this applies on our teams too, right? On our teams, we want psychological safety. Could you define that for us? Uh, Amy Edmondson is a researcher who did a lot of the initial research on psychological safety, and her definition is. It's a shared belief held by members of a team that the team is safe for interpersonal risk-taking. Teams that have this property end up being way more effective as teams. They're able to collaborate better and make more creative outputs, and they're just better by many metrics than teams that don't have this. In fact, when Google was doing research into what makes Google's teams the best, it wasn't any of a list of 10, 20 things that they thought it would be. It was like safety was number one. What was that interrelational risk-taking? Interpersonal risk-taking. I was close. Yeah, same idea. So would that be like talking to your neighbor? Uh, yeah. So uh, my upstairs neighbor who was smoking, I don't know him. I don't trust him closely. I've never interacted with him except in this situation. So we didn't really have a safe environment 
I didn't feel like I could tell him all of my thoughts and feelings and that he would respect them immediately because I don't know this person. You should probably expect that most people aren't going to care about you very much if they don't know you. That's a pretty good baseline. So this person I probably now have psych safety with. Like He respects and values my thoughts and feelings and experiences, and I respected him and his. And it has only went well probably because I went up to him and tried to make an environment where it was safe to talk about what we're thinking. I was like, I respect you. It's fine that you're smoking. Something's probably very stressful to make you smoke is extra today. And, da, 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 and oh, I wow. tried being very empathetic with him and not shaming him for smoking. And just he needed this piece of information from me. And I needed him to be in a state where he could accept it. He just needed to know that smoking indoors goes through the vent into my room. That's a thing I'm sure he could not know on his own as information only I had. And I just wanted to convey it in a way that he would accept. So I thought really hard about being empathetic and I presented it just the right way. And apparently it worked. And all my friends were saying, Casey, no, don't even. Just call the building manager. You don't need to deal with this. I'm like, no, I want to treat him like a person. It was great. I would do it again. So you mentioned that you didn't have safety, and then you took the risk anyway, and now you think you do have safety. So this is another one of those spiral things, that psychological safety makes it okay to take these risks of sharing information like that, which in turn increases psychological safety. Yeah, definitely. It's a feedback loop. Once you have it, you're kind of golden. It keeps proliferating itself. Hopefully. Assuming somebody on the team doesn't take that as a sign of weakness and, and lash out at it, right? Could happen. That's the risk part. I recently wrote about my experience um, working on the community and safety team at GitHub, and it got some attention. And in thinking about that and framing it in light of our conversation, I think that what I experienced was a false sense of psychological safety. Um, oh. I was hospitalized for depression and immediately coming out of that was put on a performance plan, the worst possible timing. And when I tried to share the effects of the trauma from my hospitalization that I was experiencing, I was accused of being manipulative rather than being met with empathy and compassion. So do you think that that false sense of psychological safety is prevalent? And is that a danger if one person feels psychologically safe and the environment actually is not psychologically safe? Yeah, so I would say you felt like it was safe to take the risk of sharing this personal stuff with your team, but it was not safe. That was a risk that turned out poorly. And I'm sorry that happened. That was stressful. So more than stressful. How do we identify whether a situation really is safe or not? I'm not sure you can ever know for sure. I think there are some factors that make it more or less likely that it's safe. I think smaller groups are more often safe. Groups in which you know people better or trust them more, even on a personal level, that's more likely going to be safe. There's no guarantee. I think as Jessica was just saying, like that's just the risk. And you have to, at some point, decide whether it's an acceptable level of risk and either do the thing or don't do the thing. What I'm curious about is whether it's possible to turn those situations around. If there's anything we could do other than, you know, burn it to the ground and leave, which is, of course, my first reaction to most things. Janelle, you were saying earlier that you have a strategy of leading with vulnerability. Yeah, I guess what I've learned is that people will naturally reciprocate. I mean, Casey, you were talking about modeling in, in your video. And essentially what I've learned as I've learned to feel safer and more comfortable in myself is that floodlighting vulnerability generally reciprocates vulnerability. It also, I've learned, is assaulting to people that are just can't get there, you know? And so I've, I've had to like learn how to tone down my intensity at the same time, but it, it's, it's just, it's kind of how I am. I'm like, I want to sit around and dream and, and, you know, talk about philosophy of life. You know, this is like where I'm at mentally. And so, you know, there's some people that are willing to challenge themselves and the way they think about themselves and there's other people that like the thought of like whooping themselves and like living in that <laughs> of awareness is just like, that's too much effort. <laughs> you know, Janelle, when you are in that situation of leading with vulnerability and it's been successful, at least sometimes, what were the power dynamics there? Were you leading from a leadership position? Generally speaking, yeah, I've been either like team lead or, or leading like a consulting team or, and like with consulting, I mean, it's all a matter of leadership because you don't have any official control to do anything. It's all 
influence. And so in the context of my job of figuring out how do I like take this corporate monster organism of people that are so buried deeply in their dysfunctions and figure out how to make them move together. And so I learned this set of skills of basically understanding my own energy and how I was able to pull on the emotional energy of others to, to influence. And so I've got skills in that regard that have become like, I eventually came to, hey, like my trauma that I went through, it's given me a really useful set of skills with regards to self-awareness. And now I can like kick ass at work because I've been traumatized. And so I've, I've kind of just come to this place of like accepting that all my past, like, put me in a position so that I'm capable of doing all the things I can do today. And so that helps me to just be at a place where I can be deeply vulnerable and lead at the same time. And I think that's the one thing missing in most of our leadership is that kind of deep, strong empathy, that ability to not need to defend your ego or your sense of like feeling like, you know, all the things, you know, like just being comfortable with being ignorant. But how do you think the power dynamic influences that? Because in my particular situation, I was not the person in power. So I did not have the authority to sort of set the tone and make this an empathetic sort of interaction. Do you think that being in that leadership position gives you that advantage that maybe other people don't really have? That responsibility, maybe. Like that. Like, I think that's why. I feel a sense of responsibility with it because I meet a lot of people that feel trapped in that way. And when I was in the system, I felt trapped. I mean, like I was ready to explode, like working in the context of organization. Like I had so many times where I just like rock the boat and almost got myself fired because I cared too damn much and like stupid decisions and things that were just wrong and broken. I just railed against the machine and exploded. So I'm like, but then when I was a consultant, you know, it's like you're on the outside. And then it was about me seeing all that pain in the machine and being able to like figure out how to make things move so I could help people. So as a leader, there's a lot you can do with vulnerability. Casey, do you have any more information for us about how we can encourage psychological safety on our team? Uh, We can break psych safety down into two parts. Uh, One part is about the average social sensitivity on your team, which is empathy. And that's something people can learn. People can train in empathy, but it's harder and slower than training technical skills for sure. Uh, The other one is communication. Like how often people share their thoughts and feelings is a pretty good correlate to how safe they feel. So actually, I used to manage 300 students that worked for the IT department of a university. And when we hired, we decided whether we wanted to hire on two scales, how empathetic they were, how peopley versus how technical they were. And we're inclined to hire people who are like five out of five technical. They've literally done this job before. But that was like the opposite of what was good. Our favorite employees, the most effective ones, were the ones that had high empathy but low tech skills but learned the tech. The tech We taught the tech. Like they could learn it, absolutely. We weren't that worried about it. And the high empathy people learned the tech, but the high tech people didn't learn the empathy on the job. It wasn't, I think they could have potentially somehow, but it wasn't a priority of theirs. Did they have earned dogmatism with their extremely high tech skills? Actually, often they did. Some of them felt superior to the students they were helping, so that they were like, why don't you just absolutely already know how to do everything? And they were trying. They were all trying. They wanted to do their best. But it's harder for them, since they weren't already empathetic, to be empathetic at these students they were helping. So that disparity in tech skills actually magnifies the communication problems. Oh, yeah. This is reminding me very strongly of a recent tweet storm that Sarah May wrote about how, and she's talked about this a couple of times on Twitter, I think. She talks about how the uh, rise of code schools is allowing people to change careers into tech from other careers, and how that plays out interestingly over the course of, you know, five years or so that tech school, that code schools have been around. Um, She talks about specifically how people who are changing careers have already developed their communication skills in some other arena, and they bring those with them when they change into tech. So they spend a couple of years learning the tech and they get slowed down a little bit because of that. But once they hit mid-career, you know, at three to five or so years, they start to pull ahead of people who have started from a computer science background because CS doesn't teach empathy or communication skills. They're really minimized or 
neglected entirely. She's been observing some interesting patterns in the careers of people who come in with those communication skills and that they're starting to do to outperform those of us with a traditional CS background, which I think is great. Not only does it not teach empathy, it doesn't teach people to value empathy even. Yeah. I think more important than being empathetic is valuing empathy, because at least then you're on a trajectory to get better at it over time. I can be immensely patient with people who are learning things, but I'm really not that patient with people who actively don't want to learn empathy. (laughs) That's very frustrating. I don't know what to do with those people. Like you said earlier, Sam, to perform empathy means to care about it. It doesn't mean to fake it. It means I am trying to do a better job at this than I have been able to do in the past. So Casey, we'll link to your video in the show notes. What else will people learn from watching it after listening to this podcast? Hey, I'm so glad you asked. In the slideshow slash video, there's a lot of diagrams that explain the kinds of things we're talking about visually. That's pretty useful. Also, we didn't talk about how to encourage psychological safety in your workplace. I have 10 specific things you can do on your team to make it better. Uh, Some of those are from the research. Some of those are from my experience. It's kind of a mix of both. Uh, The video, I guess, is probably the best way for that. I don't think it's written out fully. Uh, There are a lot of links to articles and other videos that go into all these topics in more depth. And of course, you could do your independent research to go even deeper. If you do so, I'd love to hear from you what you find. I was having this conversation earlier with Jessica about identity and our presence within ourselves, And I found that there's like three primary ways of being in the world. And if we connect with others and sort of see ourselves through their eyes, like we we live in a reflection of ourselves and define our identity in terms of like how other people or how we believe other people see us. And then we can live and be kind of within our within our body and we can we can feel ourselves and we can feel our feelings as inputs and do this whole kind of awareness of this translation and, and kind of feel that process inside of our body. And then we can kind of like step out of that, which I call the chooser presence where we start looking at life and who we are as a set of first principles, the set of vectors, a, a, a direction as opposed to a goal. And to me, I see like bubbles as the vector. And so I find so much beauty in this idea of bubbles that just really resonates with me. And, you know, when you're describing empathy, this idea that empathy is this value that we need to hold, it's saying empathy needs to be a first principle that is core to who we are, but it's also centric to that chooser presence. And I think the thing is with cognitive behavioral therapy is that is that it allows us to shift to that chooser presence and make a decision to take ownership of our lives. And that's really powerful. That's how you get, you find your way to an authentic alignment is making a decision to choose your life. So that's pretty beautiful to me. I love the word volition. I think it sounds really good. It means kind of uh, choosing the actions you do. It's like uh, having willpower and executing on it. I think that's kind of uh, what Janelle was just saying. Jessica, do you have reflections on the conversation today? One of the things that I wrote down in my notebook about this conversation is the part about when you have that feeling of frustration or anger, it's still useful to feel it in the moment so that it doesn't hang around and eat you. But after you feel it, then we decide how to react. And that's important because Coraline, you said something about how if after anger, you lash out, that internalizes the anger. And for a second, I was like, wait, but didn't you just express the anger? But I think actually by acting on it, you made it yours. You made it a part of your history and yourself as opposed to choosing a different reaction. And you reinforce that path for future use. Mm, Yeah, nice. Wielding anger like a sword. Our weapons become part of us. It can be really useful. When wielded properly, or you could hurt yourself. Sam, um, what are you taking away from this conversation? 
Oh, there's a lot. I feel like I need to go back and listen to this like always. But the there were a couple of things that I wrote down. Uh, I wrote down that rationality is a facade, which, you know, I, I knew as an idea, but I hadn't heard it expressed in those four words before, and I like those. Um, the other thing I wrote down was this idea that state machines can be edited, because I hadn't realized that I thought of them as static before until I actually said that. And looking at those two things, rationality is a facade and state machines can be edited. I'm noting, I'm really enjoying the contradiction, the apparent contradiction between those two. And I'm going to have to sit with that for a while and, and enjoy how they are contradictory and yet not at the same time. So thank you. I'll remember under the idea and I'm going to have to, to think about this a little more. Um, I use the phrase performing empathy and in the chat that we have going on while we record the podcast, it was pointed out that maybe that was indicating that empathy is always performative and not necessarily sincere. You know, Casey, you talked about the importance of valuing empathy. And I think the idea of performing empathy is basically that if empathy doesn't yet come naturally to you, if it's something you're still learning or adapting to, if you don't initially have the response of understanding and feeling with another person, you can learn that by performing it as an action, making a deliberate choice to try to be empathetic even when you don't necessarily feel it. And I think that's probably part of learning and internalizing and strengthening the empathetic reaction to the emotions of others. Casey, do you have any reflection? Um, I've been reflecting this week a lot about the smoker. And I'm so glad I responded empathetically to him because he responded empathetically back and everything turned out great. But I'm wondering why don't other people do this? I think responding empathetically is just about always a good idea, but it takes energy to do, especially if it's not your habit. The more of a habit we can make it, the lower energy cost it is for us. And I just want to help a lot of people lower that cost. That would be awesome. Sweet. I think you've done that today. So this has been a really great conversation as usual. And I want to remind people that if you enjoy the conversations that we have on this podcast, you can support our efforts directly by going to patreon.com slash greater than code, all one word. Um, one of the benefits of becoming a patron is you get access to our patron-only Slack community where you can speak at greater length with our guests and our panelists and other members of the community and explore the ideas and share your thoughts and opinions on the ideas that we talk about on the podcast. We are very thankful to all of our patrons and your patronage ensures that we can continue having these conversations. So thank you all. Also, also you get you get access to the outtakes that we record while Coraline is in the bathroom. Thanks for oversharing that, Jessica. <laughs> I feel like that should be our unofficial motto. Thanks for oversharing, Jessica. <laughs> it's not hard. So thank you all. And we look forward to talking to you again in a couple of weeks. Bye.